Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for listening. This is Embodied Astrology, and I'm Renee Sills. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Jennifer Patterson, a breathwork facilitator, herbalist, and writer whose work creates space for healing through expanded states of consciousness. Jenny and I are both going to be sharing some of our practices to access expanded states, and I'll be talking with her about her journey through trauma, healing, and her work in the world. As an astrologer, I have to say, I'm pretty pleased we got to record and release this episode during Pisces season because Pisces is the sign that rules expanded states of consciousness and psychedelic experiences. But whatever season you're listening in from in the future, I truly hope that you find resources for your own healing and expansion in our conversation. Before we get into the interview, I want to say thank you so much to all of the Embodied Astrology subscribers. Your monthly donations make this podcast possible. If you like the show and want to be a contributor and get lots of cool subscriber perks, go to embodiedastrology.com forward slash subscribe. It feels like a really good day to be doing this talk because, um, so yesterday was the inferior conjunction of Mercury with the sun and the sun is in Pisces right now. And the inferior conjunction is the time in, in the Mercury retrograde when Mercury appears to catch up with the sun. And um, a lot of people write about it as the beginning of what's called the Promethean phase of Mercury. Like Prometheus is the the dude that stole fire from the gods and this kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, insight, instinctual, expansive mind um, that Mercury goes into in the retrograde of like looking deeply um, within and backwards and out there, especially in Pisces. kind of the dream space so it feels like we chose the right day to do it after all totally good timing <laughs> yeah um we talked about starting off with like some breath work or some embodiment practice do you want to do that sure yeah i'm just gonna start by closing my eyes and for anyone that's listening if you want to join feel free to close your eyes if that feels good um if it feels better to find a spot on the floor or the wall or some place to hold your stare, feel free to do that too. And so as we kind of drop in, you know, we might immediately find resistance. Um, You know, all of a sudden you might be very hungry or remembered that email you have to do. So just, you know, we're just going to do this for a couple minutes. So just noticing all the, the fluttering that might happen when you close your eyes or focus on something. Just taking in a breath through the nose and then breathing out through the mouth. Just repeating that a few more times and just keeping the attention on the inhale and the exhale. I was actually listening to a Ram Das. Um, short breathing meditation this morning before we got on this call and you know he's always so funny and just kind of like very dry humor and kind of like trickster energy and he was just talking about like how you know you're just gonna when you start focusing you're gonna be pulled away a thousand times and the work is to kind of just come back a thousand times so anytime you start thinking of a thing or something you have to do Just be like, oh, cool thought, back again, and then dropping back into noticing your breath. 
And if noticing your breath feels hard um, or if it's bringing up a lot, if it feels good to sit with what's coming up, you can totally do that and you're welcome to just feel whatever's present. If it feels better to maybe have some distraction, feel free to like grab something close to you and hold on to it. Um, you can open your hands and close them and just kind of bringing some awareness to your physical body beyond the breath, um, if the breath's feeling hard. So staying with the breath, noticing the inhale, noticing the exhale. And just feeling it second to second. Presence is, you know, second to second, minute to minute. Just kind of doing it over and over and over. And it's okay to be pulled away. It's okay to feel resistance, distraction. It's okay to feel annoyed. It's okay to feel like you're into this. And just letting it, you know, letting it all exist at once. Letting yourself kind of cycle through whatever's showing up as you're just sitting a bit more present with your breath. And ultimately, for me, in these kinds of practices um, around the breath is that I'm trying to move more towards remembering that my breath is a resource. So, you know, that hasn't always been the case for me. I haven't always felt like it's been a resource. I've often felt like it's been a problem or something that I'm doing wrong. And so, you know, that might all be there for you, too. But... For me, I know that my breath is a resource. I need it. It's what's keeping me here. It's keeping me alive. It's keeping me, the more, the more deep it is and the more present I am with it, the more present I am in my life and in the ways that I'm showing up. And so, you know, that's just work sometimes. It's work to be present to our own bodies and our own, our own sensations and feelings that are showing up in them. But each time you're in a practice of noticing your breath, just noticing, yeah, noticing the hard stuff around it, noticing the moments of beauty. Noticing when you give yourself a hard time for straying yet again. I was talking and I just had some random flutter of something. I don't even know what it was because I was like, nope, we're coming back. <laughs> so, you know, like having, having some boundaries with your thoughts if you're able to. Thoughts just keep going. They're just going to be going no matter what. Maybe one or two more breaths. And just noticing if you can even drop it a bit more low into your diaphragm, into your lower abdomen. Letting it expand a bit on the inhale and then just letting it all out on the exhale. it feels good to if you stayed with it or even if you didn't if you strayed a bit just kind of offer yourself some thanks for doing it trying it out seeing how it feels inside and feel free to open your eyes if you had them closed or if you were looking somewhere just kind of come back to wherever you're at first i just want to appreciate how just like that simple invitation to feel my breath really shifted my state I went from being in more of a mental state, like 
we're going to have a conversation to just feeling more relaxed and present. Totally. Yeah. Me too. Um, yeah, I think I'd like to also just offer a, a simple embodiment or attunement. And this is a form that I think a lot of people have done. It's just called a body scan. And I like to start up in my head if I'm feeling more heady. And so you can just bring awareness and attention into the feeling of your scalp and try and feel the sensation on your scalp. You're also welcome to close your eyes um, or not, but sometimes having eyes closed can help bring sensation um, specifically. Imagine that kind of like a warm water is being poured down onto your scalp. Your awareness can pour down over your face and the back of your head and also through the inside of your skull. And just notice what sensation is present behind your eyes, between your ears, inside your mouth and your jaw joint, even in your tongue. Let your attention move back to your breath just to notice for a second the sensation of breath that comes in and touches the back of your throat and then moves down into your lungs. And then let your awareness feel the inner and the outer body. So as you're breathing in and your breath is traveling into your lungs, notice how the neck and the outside of your throat feel and the tops and the backs and the fronts of your shoulders. And your ribs and your torso. And notice if the sensation of breath, if it moves into your shoulders at all, where you feel the sensation of breath movement stop. I kind of feel it stop um, around the deltoids, like the big shoulder muscles. And then I'll just take my awareness into the, the skin, but also the inner body of my arms. And notice my upper arms and my elbows and my forearms and my wrists and hands and fingers. And then try and feel the entire encasement of your torso, your back and your chest and your belly and your sides. And let your awareness be in the inner body as well as the outer body. The outer body is the skin, maybe the larger outer muscles. And the inner body is everything else, everything inside. If you confront spaces that feel unknown or hard to access, just kind of place those unknowns and let your awareness move around them, kind of like rocks in a, um, a river or something. And then let your awareness come down into your low belly and your low back. And then into your pelvis and your butt 
and your genitals and your groins. And then let your awareness spread out into both of your legs and start to travel down through your thighs and your upper legs. And down into your knees. I'm always imagining water, like water swirling around and bringing sensation into different spaces. And then let your breath pour down into your lower legs and through your ankles and into your heels and into your feet and the tips of your toes and all the way into the soles of your feet. And then just as a, a last moment of awareness, try and feel your whole body in the inner body and the outer body. Your skin awareness, the external sensations, and also in your inner awareness. And then if you have closed your eyes, it's a, a trick or maybe just an invitation to when you open your eyes, try and stay connected to your felt sense. Thank you for that. I am that emotional. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when you um, bring embodied awareness uh, in and you feel emotion come up, is it, specific for you or does it feel kind of like just a just an energy that you encounter I think it's like old body memory of just remembering you know like I'm very much a person in recovery from being separate from my physical or embodied experience and so whenever I like really settle down into it I'm like fuck, like, I cannot believe that for so long I felt disconnected from this. Mm -hmm. And like, I still do sometimes, but mm -hmm. this feels like such a, a deep grief. And, and then also there's like gratitude for um, like finding my way back into it, even though it, it hasn't been easy. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel something similar with my body, but also with my breath. Like when you started um, you know, I came across like a constriction in my breath that didn't have a story attached to it, but like felt like a lot of anxiety. And I think, you know, we're recording and I have this desire for things to be a certain way and, you know, nervousness and stuff. And I could feel like my own anxiety coming up. And that also felt like a really old pattern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jenny, how did you get into breath work? How did this, how did you find this practice? Hmm. So I, I guess it was back in 2014. Um, my dog had died and it was like this whirlwind cancer experience where he was sick for like, or that I knew for like 37 days and exhausted me in every capacity, financial, emotional, and then he died. And, um, I had always been afraid of him dying because I, I really was worried that it would like 
it would be the final straw and like I just wouldn't be able to be here anymore. Um, and so I like, I felt a lot of that come up and I was like, just not doing well. Um, and a lot of like my old trauma that I had experienced that like in some ways I never really had navigated appropriately was just like full, full throttle. And so um, I went away for a month and just like worked from this cabin because I was doing a lot of work that was remote at that point. And um, when I came back, I went to a breathwork group with Erin Telford, who was a teacher in Brooklyn. Um, and she was an acupuncturist. She was an acupuncturist. She now just mostly does breathwork. Um, and I like didn't really want to go because I had like a really fraught relationship with my breath. I was like, I don't know how to breathe and I have a really shallow breath. And, you know, like I was, you know, I, I encounter a lot of people now that are like so afraid of their breath. And like, I was definitely that person. I, I still am sometimes, you know? So I went and it just completely melted my brain. It's a very specific breathing practice that I went to and that I now facilitate. It's pretty activating and like very much um, about being kind of brought into this expanded consciousness and expanded awareness. And I had done some psychedelic work at that point. So I was familiar with the territory, but it still was kind of shocking that like I could just use my breath and do that. So um, from there, I just realized that I, I mean, I practiced on my own and with people with groups and stuff for a bit, but then I also was like, Oh, I want to like do this with other people. Cause I want to, I have some ideas around like, I want to do it and like how I want to make space for people that, you know, are similar to me, both like in the relationship to their breath or survivors or queer people and trans people. And so, yeah, just kind of started following, <laughs> following, following the path of it, I guess. Yeah. Was it immediately obvious to you or was it something that Erin introduced that there might be a link between breath and trauma? Um. It was immediately obvious to me. Um, I think just in my own experience of the, <clears throat> when I was in that group, in the, in the groups, it's like, it's a very individual experience. And so you're kind of just with yourself and, you know, the facilitator is, is leading and sharing information or questions or prompts along the way. But something that came on really strong for me was that I just, even though it was like a flash of a second, like I just felt okay. Like I, I think like I had all of this fear around my dog dying and like all of the violence I'd experienced and like when it was going to finally just take me out. And, um, I had like this flash of a sensation that just felt so full body of like, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm going to be okay, you know? And sure. that was new. Like that was something I had not I don't think I had ever encountered that in myself yet. Like I really didn't think I was going to be okay. So it was so small, <laughs> but it was like just enough to be like, Oh, okay. That's new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the um, exercise you just facilitated, you mentioned breath being a resource. Is that kind of what you're talking about? This feeling of okayness? Totally. And I think, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who, and I also, you know, chronic anxiety and panic attacks and depression and, you know, flashbacks and PTSD and complex PTSD, like all of these things that really, um, 
can leave us feeling really separate from our bodies and like also feeling like breath is the problem. You know, like I, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I just don't want to breathe deeply. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like, cause I, I mean, that's also me, you know, like often, I feel like we often attract people that are similar to us in some ways. And like, I, I have a lot of people where I get it mirrored back to me often where I'm like, shit, yeah, that, that was me. And, and that's a really hard way to live, you know? Yeah. Like our breath is, um, it can bring things up and it does, you know, like when I work with folks, it's like a lot can come to the surface, but you know, it's already in us. Like Mm -hmm. I, I come back to this idea all the time in myself or with other people where it's like, we are already holding what has happened to us in our bodies. So it's, it's there no matter what, you know, like, and I think for me, it's like practices like breath work allow me to bring stuff to the surface in a way where I can just witness it a bit more and be and have, have things start to make sense. Like, oh, no wonder I'm feeling this way because this happened and this is how I feel about it or this person and me and, you know, like there's all these ways where I get to have um, a deeper relationship with what I'm already holding. So yeah, talk talk a little bit about like the scary aspects of breath work. I mean, I th- I think we hear a lot about like the healing potential of breath work, and you know, um, especially in healing communities or yoga communities, there are a lot of people like the breath, the breath. But it can be really scary, and it can bring a lot of stuff up. So what a- what are some of the experiences you've had a- around that kind of more discomfort? You know, I think for me, um, connected to it is that I, I, I worked with um, a psychedelic, a very intense psychedelic before I found breath work. And so there was this way where I was kind of like thrown up against everything terrifying in my life, like a few months before I found breath work. So I felt like um, when I went to breath work, it was kind of, it was a similar practice. And so I, I was a little bit less afraid that I might have been had I done it like before psychedelic work I think so you did a session with me a couple of months ago you facilitated a breathwork session for me online and um I started to feel like a lot of um I don't I I mean I can name it now as like uh, like an intense self-scrutiny and feelings of wrongness in my body and a lot of fear and I'm thinking about how like ha- having trauma or having experienced trauma, which could be even just being alive in the world and not even having like particularly traumatic experiences otherwise can induce a state of fear in the soma. And then we get tight and kind of develop these holding patterns in a more superficial breath state. So as I started to get deeper into it, I like felt my own, um, just like instability and insecurity. And I felt really exposed in the breath. It was like, I couldn't, I couldn't then just turn around and not see it or ignore it. Mm -hmm. And it felt really intense um, to be there and like tears started coming out. And I think also in that moment, I was going through a, a being watched kind of thing. Like you were facilitating and I was like, someone seeing me cry this is coming out in public or, you know, this is being exposed in some way. And that felt really vulnerable. 
it's interesting because you were saying you have like language for it now. I feel like sometimes that it's like trying to trace back into breath work and psychedelics for me. Sometimes I'm like, what are the words for this? You know? And I think like, it's interesting because as a, as a writer, like I love words. I'm very interested in them. And then I also, I lose them sometimes in these practices. And I think what I'm often left with is like, yeah, like a fuller, physical or emotional sensation that um doesn't always fit into like a story or a narrative right Uh, but I do like some of the things that I'm often wrestling with in practice is just like abandonment and like my own self-abandonment and like the ways that I've internalized the violence that I've experienced um so just doing breath work for me is hard sometimes where I'm like, wait, you mean I have to like go take care of myself? Like what? Mm-hmm. Or like cooking dinner is hard, you know? Cause I'm like, why do I have to cook dinner again? Mm-hmm. And like, this is like a, it's like a very deep, deep, deep wound around abandonment and like showing up for myself, even if like I can't count on other people or I can't count on a caretaker or a partner, you know, like how do I do it for myself? Mm-hmm. And so in my practice with breath work it's like like even just doing the meditation with you it's like I usually feel just like an immense amount of grief for the ways that I have internalized abandonment and I've internalized like my own um worthiness you know like 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 being worthy of breathing it's like I I forget that I am sometimes and then when I get into that practice I'm like oh right like god it's so obvious <laughs> that right. I'm, I am and I think like you know I think for me my trauma experiences and maybe again it's because I've you know I've, I've worked through them in different ways it doesn't often like, I think there's sometimes fear that, like, there's going to be really intense, people have fears around, like, really intense flashbacks coming up um, in breath work. And, like, certainly people do experience that. But I think sometimes there's a way where it's, um, it can be, it can feel, like, less particular. Yeah. About, like, like, you were kind of talking about, like, this, like, fuller sensation um, that comes through. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying makes so much sense. Like, I've, um I'm thinking about you or anybody having experienced early childhood trauma and like really key relational trauma and the fact that the, the people or the environments that were supposed to be a safe space weren't there. And so those entrainment patterns were never integrated within the body. And then the body as a result is always in a state of hyper alert and survival mode, which is naturally a higher breathing pattern. Like we, you know, our, we switch into our sympathetic systems, um, which is a, a higher breath and like the eyes get really big and, you know, the upper body gets super alert and our muscles go on alert. But then that deeper diaphragmatic breath that supports all of the organs and the vital systems um, decreases a lot. Yeah. And then it, it seems like when you're going back through breath work, it, it's like... Sh- you know, strange terrain, because it's not something that you are entrained with, and it doesn't feel familiar. And you also have associations to it as a place where you don't get to be because the people or the environments that were supposed to create that for you didn't. And, and then these kinds of resulting feelings of, 
uh, unworthiness or, or something like that can, can come up too. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I also really appreciated what you said about not having words for your experience. And um, I think that's something that, that you've talked about quite a bit, right? Is like this, this wordless space. And I was just reading um, the article that you sent me that you wrote, um, Living in Liminality, Working with the Wounds of Trauma Through Altered States in Poison Medicine, which I'll link in the show notes. It's an awesome article. Um, but in that article, you, you talked about like not having language for your experience and that being a place that you wanted to be empowered around, like kind of elevating the space where um, you don't need to explain it. It's not about making it um, logical, tangible to fit into a linear narrative for something because that's also not how trauma works. Trauma is existing in a part of the brain that doesn't know time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, as a, like, I've, I've been writing since I was a kid and I definitely, like when I was really little, I don't know if I consciously knew it in like elementary school, but like I was definitely writing as a way of kind of like moderating or modulating my experience and like my environment and like the harm I was experiencing. And as I got older you know, I, I, I wrote up through high school and then I lost track of it for a few years when I was kind of in like the thick of, you know, a rape and a physical assault and like harmful relationships and drinking a lot. And when I finally came back to writing, I was specifically trying to use language to like literally just locate my body because I had completely lost track of it. Like I didn't, I had no idea what was happening in it. Um, and this was, you know, maybe like my mid or later 20s. And so for me, like returning to writing was like a very somatic practice. Um, and I don't think it was, you know, and I think like I was writing about the violence I had experienced or the complex PTSD that I was navigating. And it felt, it felt like both out of time, you know, like not in a, in a linear narrative or like a clear narrative and it also just felt a bit beyond language like the stuff that I was experiencing somatically didn't like I couldn't find the words for it really like I couldn't find accurate language and so you know I kept trying like that's <laughs> I'm still trying um and I think you know breath work and psychedelic work have offered me like a another way of being with my experiences where like language is a little bit less necessary um and so I like the two of them together because you know like I say that and I'm also the person that's like every psychedelic ceremony I've ever done even the ones where like um I've worked with Iboga and you're like kind of just laying on your back for you know upwards of 48 hours hardly moving um, I'm still writing during that, you know, so I'm like, I'm like both very attracted to the idea of like no longer needing language as much as I did, but then also being like, oh, but I better get some of this down on paper, you know, so for me, it's a both and it's like, I love being in practices where I'm not as um, beholden to language or mm -hmm. time either, you know, both of those practices are very also like out of time and mm -hmm. in a, you know, in this expanded state of consciousness. Yeah, I love, um, I think this is your term uh, from this language, although it might be someone that you were quoting, the somatic remains of trauma um, as a concept. 
that they're my experience also as a like embodiment practitioner and facilitator is that there are experiences that the body is holding that we might be able to describe but even in the description it can't really come into language because language doesn't um it's not big enough to encompass the sensation and a lot of times the sensations are coming from memories that are have been really repressed or they happened when we were really young maybe we don't even remember them or perhaps they're even ancestral and that's something that you've talked about too is connecting with your ancestors through these practices and i know as as i've kind of explored my own um like embodiment rituals, I've come across memories that I'm like, this is not, I know for a fact that this is not my actual memory. This doesn't come from my biography, but it's living so strongly in my body as an impulse. And I could tell a story about it, but also telling a story about it in some ways takes me out of the witnessing of it and the just being present and allowing um, the energy to um, be acknowledged, which I think is, is something that has come up for me a lot with um, with breath work, with embodiment, and also with psychedelics, where it's just, okay, I'm here to witness something. I'm here to like really completely experience and allow my cellular consciousness to integrate with my mental and emotional consciousness that we are experiencing this and I'm not going to separate into some other place. And often words separate me, like they get me up into my head where I'm describing something from the outside. And sometimes that feels super healing and sometimes it doesn't. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. When I was journaling this morning, I was trying to think of, you know, when do I access expanded awareness? And I like to smoke weed. And that's one of the times that I feel like I access it sometimes. Um, but I was, when I was writing, I was like, oh, this state of expanded awareness um, from cannabis is uh, a state where my functional awareness is diminished. Like conversations I'm having in real time don't really make sense. Like I'm not in a good spot to make good decisions about things that I'm doing. Like, you know, don't send a text from that space or like, don't like make a banking decision or something like that. But then I will have these kind of portals open where I feel like I um, am just pulled into some kind of, of sensory experience or like intergalactic experience and maybe I'm not even choosing it. It's something that's choosing me. And then I can go there and, um, you know, get, get a lot of information from that space. But then I have to kind of translate it um, later, you know, when I, when I come out of that space. And then I was thinking before that, when, when I was like, well, what is an expanded state? What's not an expanded state? And for me, what, what is not an expanded state is um, task orientation, like doing and survival and being in a, um, in a kind of like productivity mindset, which often words are very connected to for me. Yeah. Um, and so then being in an expanded state is not being productive. It's like not actually um, maybe being quote unquote functional in like a typical explanation of what that word means. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I very much relate to that. It's like whenever I'm like in the to-do list, which is often, I just, I'm like, this is not a way to live. <laughs> like, right. It's like narrow and it feels like so tight and specific. And um, 
yeah, it's interesting though to think about like what's expanded and what's not. And like another, you know, like I feel like the language often changes, um, you know, ordinary and non-ordinary states of consciousness, you know, all, all kind of describing the same things. And um, like some of what I was um, doing a lot of work around when I was in grad school um, and this, this other book that I'm working on that is about, you know, altered or expanded or non-ordinary states of consciousness is that also like, like dissociation is in that family for me. And like, PTSD is and like those are sometimes you know harder it's a harder terrain to be in I think but like there are so many gifts that exist in being like being with what's happening you know like if I'm dissociative like where where is my mind going in that moment you know like where like where is my physical or emotional experience in that moment and like trying to find ways into it in a way where it's not like so shame-based, like, oh God, I'm so dissociative or dissociations like fucking everything up or I can't, I can't stay in this reality. And I'm, I'm kind of more interested about like not staying in this reality, you know, like why, like why? Like there are so many, there are so many realities happening, you know, it's like, and I think that's also like a gift that I've got from breath work and psychedelic work is it's like, like the mind is very powerful. Like our, awareness and our consciousness kind of outrageously incredible and like I lose a lot when I'm like just not letting myself travel out of it in whatever vehicle it is whether it's like a psychedelic or dissociation or whatever you know yeah yeah totally and so in your article you talk a little bit about poison as medicine And then you have this quote where you said, ever since I was young, I've wanted to feel both secure and at risk at at once. Some may call it a death drive, but I've never been fearful of things that could kill me. Instead, I often feel drawn to them. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Like, what is that, you know, how is that kind of a a bridge for you into these altered or or, um, non-normal states? Um. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, um, I'm like, I'm now, I'm now in my late 30s. When I was in my <laughs> 20s, um, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty, I was just involved in taking a lot of chances, I think. Um, and I think some of it was because of the trauma I had experienced. I like just didn't really value my own life. Um, and I wasn't really that concerned with staying around, you know? Um, and also I was just like very drawn to extreme experiences. Like I had already been through so many extreme experiences and I feel like sometimes it gets pathologized in like mental health worlds of like, Oh, like, like re like seeking out or like trying to re-experience like intense experiences or, or violence or whatever. And it's like, it's actually, for me, it was more about like, um, there's information there, you know, in these, in these like wildly difficult moments, you know, I'm not saying that like, I'm grateful that I've experienced like rape or physical assault or trauma growing up. It's more that, um, all of it brought me into like different realms of consciousness 
And so, yeah, when I was younger, I was just doing it <laughs> any way I could. It was like, you know, I drank a lot. I did not do any psychedelic or any kind of intentional medicine work until I was in my 30s, just because I was too afraid to like, I was like, no, I already have like a drinking issue. I'm not going to go fuck with some other stuff. But um, it didn't mean I was, wasn't trying to like find a way out or in however I could. And so I was like skydiving. I was in this relationship for a long time. And like the first six months of our togetherness, like we just had like a lot of intense experiences where like I let her light my arm on fire and I like rode through like a sand dune and a buggy and it flipped and we went sky, you know, like just these like really intense experiences. Um, and um, yeah, I think it, you know, it was like kind of trying to test my own limits and there was a way where I think like unconsciously I was like trying to snap myself back into like regular, like regular life. I don't know, you know, like I'm not, it's, it's still kind of hard to like untangle sometimes, but um, poison medicine offered me like a really interesting model because um, I'm an herbalist. And so, you know, I had like work with plants a lot and a, a good friend of mine Britta Love was doing a lot of work around poison medicine too. And so we started kind of like deep diving in these different ways together. And for me, it's like, um, yeah, finding, finding the medicine in the poison and also knowing that like the medicine can sometimes be poison. It's like they're like everything. It's a both and situation for most, most things in life, I think. Um, and so trying to work with the like what are deemed like more negative or harmful ways of adapting um like trying to find ways in that aren't as destructive for me but like help honor the the places that i've come from and what i've experienced that are maybe a bit more intense or difficult mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah it totally makes sense um i have another quote from you that I pulled up that says I reject the ways people believe a survivor should be in their body as the only ways to heal the whole and healthy and clean ways I am committed to affirming that my way of connecting to my body is an inherently embodied practice um and so with what you were just saying like I was hearing that there is wisdom in recreating states of activation for people who've spent long periods of time or intense periods of time in highly activated states and they're carrying trauma and that recreating those states can actually be a space of agency like you're making this choice um, it can be a space for exploration and like maybe even joy or pleasure within those spaces kind of like rewiring a little bit your relationship to that kind of space but then at the same time, it can also be just reactivation and like kind of a, a thickening of the layer around, um, mm, I don't quite know what the, the word is, if it's like a compulsiveness or even an addiction to being in, a, in an activated state. Totally. Yeah, there was two things that came up for me when you said that. Um, one, yeah, one is around, so some of that, piece came out of my work when I was in grad school. I went to Goddard College and it was, it's a low residency program. It's amazing and strange and you just really get to follow your own path there, which was the only way I, I had no plans to go to grad school, but um, yeah, I got a bunch of loans and went and, you know, really followed what I wanted to study. And 
um, I was kind of straddling two different programs when I was there. I was in, um, I was in neither program. I was in, I was an individualized master's program. So one of the programs though was embodiment studies. And I, that was, I started there back in like 2013. So it was like before I started really kind of deep diving into like breath work and psychedelic work and somatic therapy and all that. But um, I was so resistant to the ways that embodiment was being presented. Like I just remember like being in like workshops and just like my advisor who I love, we had a very close relationship that she, she was leading the program. I just remember like being like so reactive all the time. Like I was just like, fuck embodiment. Like what mm-hmm. the fuck? embodiment, you know, like I'm in my body all the time. Like, isn't everything I experience a form of embodiment? Like, why am I trying to go over here to some like still present place when like the dissociative place has information for me too, you know? And like to say that these experiences aren't of the body, I really struggled with. So like a lot of me in that program was just like, kind of like being like, no, (laughs) no, like no matter how I am in my body, like I'm in my body, you know, until I die, I'm, I'm in my body regardless of what it, what it looks like or how people think I should be in it. So, Mm -hmm. and it was really like, I think, I think like kind of like teasing out that idea was really useful for me because it was also like really keeping me from mindfulness or meditation or embodiment practices that I like really desperately needed because you know there was a way where I didn't feel connected to my body but I think I just wanted that to be valid like I wanted um you know like the states that we can be in in trauma recovery to also be a part of being embodied you know because they they are (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah that's making me think about um I was part of a somatics uh training program um, probably around the same time, like in 2013. And I was always like the youngest person in these spaces. And primarily they were white spaces, like white, older, somatic people, like a lot of new age, like kind of liberal mm-hmm. space. And the the work was incredible. I have such a deep respect for it. But I remember being in this room and we're having some kind of conversation around um, accessing what the facilitator was calling embryonic breath. And so it's like kind of the pre-breathing um, before the, the lungs are engaged, but you know, an organism, a body is breathing through the blood. And so she was talking about this like state of tranquility and peace. And in my biography, I have a lot of gestational trauma and so does my mom. And so those are some of the memories that like really live in me really strongly. And so every time I was going into that place, I was like feeling pissed off and really triggered. And then I was having a lot of reactivity coming up around the group and feeling like, where's the social responsibility within this group to carry such deep medicine for healing, but to have no conversation about, um, the whiteness of this space or like the, the financial inaccessibility of this space. And so I asked, you know, where's the place for violence in this work? And I I got totally shut down in that question. Like nobody wanted to answer it. They didn't want to engage it. They ignored it. And it really left an imprint on me kind of thinking about um, experiences that people have in like more of the um, like quote unquote dominant healing spaces where embodiment work or somatic work is being cultivated and explored a lot. 
that these are often spaces that are like really defined under the auspices of whiteness and a certain kind of financial comfort where like a state of tranquility might be the goal and it might be like you know the thing that everybody's elevating but it's completely ignoring experiences that are um first of all just not that but then second of all like where that might not be the goal like the goal actually might be um fury you know like a really embodied integrated fury not a state of tranquility totally yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. Cause that is, you know, that is a lot. That's been a lot of those kinds of questions have been a lot of my experiences in groups as well, where I'm like, wait a minute, like, what about, you know, like when I've been in spaces that aren't just white, I'm where it's like a white facilitator. I'm like, okay, well, where's the room for like, not yeah, acknowledging the violence that like is here with us. Like it is both carried in, in white facilitators and it is also like carried in anyone that's in the room and you know from different lenses and sides and like where is the room to talk about yeah like what is happening to the body of the world the bodies mm -hmm. of people experiencing oppression and like you know like going inside is not always a tranquil experience you know like where <laughs> you know like i've been in plenty of like less you know, critical meditation spaces or whatever, where, you know, the, the idea is to like go inside and just bring up, like I was in one, one time where they like, just bring up, go like, close your eyes, go inside and just bring up a memory. And it's like, there was no awareness about how that just that simple question might completely activate somebody's like traumatic memory and bring it right up into the room in a space that like clearly cannot hold it and there's like no framework for it because we've never even talked about trauma at all you know so it's like it's and it's hard because then i feel like those of us that encounter those kinds of questions or want like a more complex space like there's a lot of um like gaslighting and dismissal around like oh well we're we're here to be in a healing space or right. like you know like a love and light space right and, you know, that's, that's such a, a violence to some. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about, um, Michelle Johnson, whose work I know you also know, um, she was the first guest on embodied astrology a year or two ago, actually. And so for listeners that don't know Michelle's work, um, Michelle is a black woman teaching yoga, um, and doing incredible work with diverse communities, around understanding the place for yoga and also this place for breath as a tool for social justice and as a path of social justice. And I remember talking to her and her, her sharing her experience with breath and how it was just so incredible to feel the way that breath could awaken her body and also be a resource, like you were saying, around some of her trauma. And then the simultaneous, um, you know, recognition and awareness and bodily experience that she was having as a black person that, um, you know, and this was like around the time that um, Eric Garner was murdered and all the police shootings were happening. Well, not that all the police shootings aren't still happening, but this idea of um, I can't breathe, right? Like this r refrain um, was kind of coming out and in, into popular awareness as like a refrain, not only of um, 
a, a very specific instance, but as a, an entire people, like I can't breathe. And Michelle talking about this space in a black body where breath even itself is inaccessible. Yeah. Um, and then her work around like navigating and articulating and also translating what that means into different spaces that are, um, you know, yoga spaces and healing spaces, but also social justice spaces. Totally. So, so you were talking about your experiences with psychedelics and I'd love to know more about your experience with psychedelics, but also to kind of bring in this thread um, because you're a white woman working with psychedelics and with a lot of um, indigenous plant medicine. So can you talk a little bit about how you found these practices and what they've meant for you and how you evolved and developed with them? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a super complex topic. And I, I came to them through someone I had met that was um, facilitating some work. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't know. Again, like I hadn't, I didn't even really hardly smoke weed. I think I smoked it once or twice when I was in my 20s. But like, I really, I didn't know that psychedelics and entheogens and plant medicine were a tool for healing. You know, like I was very much in the phase of my life where, oh, that's something I was going to share earlier was like, so many of the things that I was moving towards when I was younger was in a, an attempt to like lose myself or like, like get rid of myself. Whereas I feel like plant medicine and psychedelics and breath work, it's a completely different, it's like the flip side where like, I'm very much trying to connect to myself. And that feels like a big shift for me in like seeking out um, other ways of being in my experience and my body. But yeah, with this kind of work with plant medicine and psychedelic work, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversations happening, you know, like in all different kinds of communities, more conversations around um, social justice and just like, how do we bring a more critical lens to the work? And I think psychedelics are particularly difficult area because people people's narratives around or I should say I don't know I maybe other people than white people but a lot of white people's narratives around psychedelics are that they're this beautiful unifying experience where like we just get to come into the beauty of the world and it's like I don't there's like there's a lot of spiritual bypassing um and there's a lot of erasure, again, of like the violence that is that is happening continuously, both within and with, without, outside of, of these kinds of communities as well. Um, and so it's challenging. It's challenging to be in those spaces for me. Um, I don't do, I don't do, a, I do mostly like solo work and I do work with like one facilitator, a couple of different facilitators, depending on what I'm working with. Um, and, you know, I think it's depending on the medicine that you're working with, it's always important to be working with people that have like a real reverence or relationship to the traditions that these medicines are coming from that are still happening. You know, like all of these medicines are still being worked with in their communities and with like people that have been working with these for generations. And um, it's kind of a very long and winding answer. But you know, there's, there are things to keep in mind, you know, like the, 
with the rise of psychedelics again, because they've, you know, they've always been happening throughout the history of time in all communities. We've always had relationships to altered states, like depending on whether it's like, you know, rosemary or it's something that's more psychoactive. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to be in relationship to these kinds of plants and traditions, both within our own communities and, you know, having like respectful um, and reciprocal relationships with other communities. But yeah, like having some awareness around, you know, the harm that we might be bringing as white people to a space or the exploitation that might be happening of either the plants or the traditions or the people. Um, and also like the sustainability of the plants, depending on whether it's like a plant or it's a compound, you know, um, iboga and ayahuasca are on the rise and iboga specifically is often used for um, addiction like opiate and um, other kinds as well. But, um, you know, there's a way where it's, you know, it's being extracted at rapid rates and in a way that it's not sustainable for the plants that are growing or sustainable for the people that work with these plants generationally forever. And, you know, it's, 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 being extracted in service to like the growing global epidemic of addiction, which is important, but also, you know, like we're not, a lot of us, a lot of us people, humans are not doing the work of untangling like the reasons for addiction, like the social and structural and institutional violences that are happening and there is a way where this medicine can be so inaccessible, you know, like if you're going to a treatment center or a clinic, depending on the medicine, it's like thousands and thousands of dollars. So, you know, I'm often left with a lot of questions around like, and me and a lot of other people, like what does accessibility look like in this kind of work? Um, what does it look like financially? What does it look like culturally? You know, um, and yeah, I don't think there's a ton of answers yet. I think that, you know, as as in many other spaces, it's like centering and lifting up, you know, indigenous elders and the wisdom and traditions and like paying those people, like paying them for their work, supporting their work in whatever way possible. Um, and like decentering the real like whitewashing that can happen in these spaces and, you know, lots of different <laughs> wellness and healing spaces. Yeah. I mean, I think also part of the whitewashing is like you were saying this idea of what's going to happen in a psychedelic space and this kind of blissful experience or even not a blissful experience, but some kind of profound experience, the expectation of it and then the desire to use it and then the desire to keep using it is something that I've come across a lot. Definitely in myself as a person who's obviously shaped by capitalism and whiteness is like my own consumer mentality, you know, that I can have some kind of profound experience because it's being facilitated for me by a medicine. And then the, the real work after that is for me to do the integration you know, to work with breath work, to work with embodiment, to um, go to therapy, you know, to like deal with the stuff that came up. But then it can also be really easy to just default to the, to the plant or to the substance and go like, I want that again. I want that again. And 
um, I've certainly encountered a lot of, of people and circles who are using um, psychedelics recreationally. And, you know, on the one hand, like, there's part of me that feels really glad because I think that we do need more expanded consciousness on the planet right now. And that's one way to access it. Um, But then another part of me that feels like, okay, this is no different than any other, you know, colonized kind of consumptive practices where um, there's total exploitation of a substance, there's appropriation of the ritual and the knowledge, and then there's um, a lack of accountability in taking care of the source. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, I know with Iboga, um, just from knowing people that have been initiated in Gabon and in the traditions and, you know, like working with Iboga in like a flood intense ceremony is something that's not done a lot of times in a lifetime. It's like usually done as like some sort of rite of passage. Um, It might be done again if there's like a spiritual crisis or some major health concern or like something big to move through, but it's not something that you do just whenever you want to. I mean, they like Gabonese people or Bwiti work with um, small amounts of it often as like a stimulant, but it's like, you know, like a very small amount and that's, it's not the same as a flood ceremony. And yeah, the, like the, you know, I know for me, it's like when I was younger with drinking, it was like, there was never enough alcohol, you know? And I think in psychedelic work, it's like usually like when I do it, it's, it's very intentional. It's very contained. It's like, I don't leave my house or I don't leave the space that I'm doing it at. Um, I'm not out partying. Um, just for me like that, I, I need to kind of control the <laughs> whatever, you know, I need to control the external so that I can like lose control a bit on the inside, I think. And um, it's really big work. Like it's like, I don't need to do it that often, you know, like sometimes I think it'd be nice to do like quarterly, depending like with a variety of different, different medicines or plants and not all the ones I work with are plants either. Um, Which, you know, in some communities, it's like people really look down on like MDMA or like (laughs) LSD and it's because they're like chemical compounds. And, um, you know, I think they also have a lot of wisdom to offer where they're very useful. So, you know, if we're doing the work, yeah, a lot of the work is integration or as my friend Dimitri Muganis often talks about like disintegration, like what do we need to disintegrate? Like what, like what are we in these ceremonies? Like what are we learning about ourselves and our ancestors or the culture around us that we need to actually be like actively dismantling, you know, like not coming into a place of complacency and being like, oh, the world is beautiful and we're all connected. Like that is true. And also like, what are the structures and systems that exist that need to be dismantled, you know? And like, how can we be doing that from the inside, especially as white people or people with privilege? Like, how do we do that work? And I think that that's, you know, like that actually makes me think about, we were talking a little bit about like ancestor work. And for me, um, you know, I don't do ancestor work super structured or traditionally or with a teacher or anybody. I've kind of like stumbled into it in doing um, psychedelic or entheogenic work. And a lot of it has just been for me to 
you know, like I have two parents, they have parents, my grandparents, grandpa- great grandparents. And like, it's been really important for me to kind of trace the, the lineage and legacy of harm on um, mostly on one side of my family, which is where a lot of it exists more, um, certainly on the other side too, but it, it's impacted me a bit less on my mom's side. Um, and so it's been really important for me to like, really like trace back and um you know it's brought me a lot of understanding for myself it's brought me a lot of understanding for my dad who um has been super abusive throughout my lifetime um it's helped me understand the violence that he's experienced and how that shaped him like it's it's allowed me to let all of the people that have harmed me be a lot more complex And I think, um, you know, like a lot of people that do different medicine work with different plants talk about kind of like coming in contact with the spirit of the plant. And, um, you know, like usually it takes the shape um, as a person. And like with Iboga, I know a lot of like often I hear like mostly white men talking about or like white people talking about coming in contact with the spirit of Iboga, which is, you know, an African person. And for me, like, certainly that's in the medicine, but also it's been like, like when I go inside and I do that kind of work, I come in contact with like my ancestors who were colonizers and like created havoc across the world. And those are, those are also the people that I need to claim and and not claim in a way that like, I'm like looking to them for guidance in this lifetime, but more like um, they're mine. <laughs> you know, they're like my responsibility. It's my responsibility to learn from from them and from those those environments that they were in in order to like break break some of that in my own life and like break some of it in the ways that I'm showing up in my communities and like in my in in the whiteness that I've inherited. Um, and yeah, I don't. I wish there was more conversation about that in psychedelic work. Like not, not everything is going to be like a spiritually, you know, like beautiful, like heart of the medicine moment. It's like, yeah, the heart of the medicine is also like the violence that exists in the world currently and, and throughout the, the whole <laughs> expanse of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I feel like working with psychedelics has really done for me along with embodiment practice, because I think I've also, this has also happened through embodiment, is um, it's really increased my subtle sensitivity. And so how I could explain this is like, um, at times when I've taken psychedelics, and I think this has kind of been across the board with all of the, the different kinds I've tried, including plant and chemical. I become really aware of um, like vibrational frequencies mm-hmm. and p- particularly aware of how vibrational frequencies change when there's um, fear and like I'll, f- I'll feel like fear vibrations really strongly and um, have gone on a lot of journeys into my own fear and the vibration of fear in my body that like you said, brings me back in an ancestral pattern and, I have ancestors on one side of my family who are colonizers and definitely there's like a lot of 
um, white supremacy and misogyny and a, a really extreme violence on that side of my family. And then I, on my other side of the family, I have, um, I come from a Jewish lineage of people who were, you know, really holding on, um, holding on and experiencing persecution mm. for hundreds of years, you know, kind of fleeing from one place to another to another. And so those, those fear frequencies get really strong for me. And then it's like I become super attuned to them in the world. And the, the way that I, let's see, how can I explain this? It's like the way that I connect to what some people might call like a cultural soma or like a body politic, right? Like this larger body that we're all connected to or like the body of um, the industrialized United States or something like that. I feel these intense frequencies of fear just like running through, running through, running through. And this feeling of like, I need to find comfort. I need to find a safe space. And then um, this simultaneous awareness of how many people and how many organisms don't have comfort and don't have a safe space. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I've also felt missing in, in a lot of my experiences with psychedelics is like place for not just the expression of grief, like that, that feels like it's there, you know, there's a lot of room for um, catharsis, but then an actual conversation about what arises in these um, ex expanded moments of perception and awareness of interconnection. Yeah. And what do we do about it? Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like, oh my God, I'm part of this machine, you know, of, of the industrialized West, like living my life, being a consumer in the ways that I'm a consumer, being totally blind and ignorant to so many experiences that are happening or only being, you know, theorizing them from a distance. Yeah. But then also having had these experiences where I feel energetically really connected to those experiences as well and a sense of responsibility for them. But then we come back out into the, the normal state or whatever, and then there's that, that split of, okay, now I'm up in my head, I'm trying to describe what I'm feeling, and I don't know what to do about it because the answer isn't actually going to be a logical one. It's going to be an emergent one. But. Totally. Yeah. And like, yeah, like how, because I feel, I feel a lot of that too when I'm in those states and like, there is like, I feel a lot of urgency, you know, which yeah. I feel in my day to day, you know, like it's a, it's definitely a thing I feel a lot of, but you know, I feel, yeah, like I, I had a, an LSD experience um, where like, I just felt so acutely like what, what we have done collectively, you yeah. know, like what we are currently living in. And like, this is, I mean, it's, it sounds very pessimistic. And this also for me comes back to, I wanted to talk a little bit about something like finding, like finding the third way, you know, like, like in these states, I feel both like profound hope. And I feel like, I feel healing happening for me. Like I can feel it literally happening so acutely. And I feel this like profound sense of hopelessness, like, oh, it's too late, you know? And like, how do we, for me, like, how do I find the space in between that allows me to like, continue healing myself, like continue doing the work to like show up for myself, so that I can bring that urgency into the world, you know, like, 
how can I be supporting other people to do that? Like, how do I, like, how do I show up so deeply for myself, but not let it stop there? You know, like, I feel like that often is like, the like more mainstream conversations around like wellness and healing are like so individualized and like that doesn't, that's not going to work, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like even if we're like at our most optimum healed, powerful individual place. Like we are still living in a world that is fractured and burning, you know, like we can only be as well as the world that we live in. And like, it's not, it's not looking yeah. right now. Right. <laughs> so no, like there's, I'm going to hit a limit on, I'm going to hit a limit on my healing. And if I'm not able to like take in and recognize and take action in the world, then it immediately is going to turn into spiritual bypassing because I'm just going to continue living in this like, well, I'm healed and I'm okay kind of place, you know, like. How do you move it out into the world, Jenny? What do you, <laughs> what do you do in your practices? I was thinking about how like psychedelics and you know, like breath work or any kinds of like these, these moments of like being deeply in tune with ourselves. Like, it's like almost like this moment of like, I'm like breaking the mold, you know, where I'm like, wow, like something new, I've just experienced something new, or I have a new way of seeing this thing or seeing this person. And, you know, for me, like, I've, I felt a real need to carry that out into the world through just like financial accessibility around wellness and healing. And not just financial, like all kinds of accessibility. I mean, I've, you know, when I was just a person going to breathwork groups or going into different healing spaces, you know, in New York City, which is like a wildly diverse place, um, the whiteness of the spaces and like how, like, I'm, I was often, as far as I knew, like the only queer person in the space or maybe the only person talking about being a survivor of violence. And I think there's all these ways that like, you know, like a person of color coming into a space or a trans person feels, can feel, and I've had feedback when people have shared about going to different spaces, like so alienated. And I think that's like a deep, that's like hits like a deep wound in me to just like know that people, um, you know, it takes so much to just get on board with the idea that we like need to make a change or we need to find some healing in our lives. And then to go to a space and be like, ah, shit, this place isn't for me. It just like literally makes me want to cry. <laughs> like I just can hardly handle that idea. Um, and, you know, like a lot of my work for better or for worse has been like trying to like find people in the cracks because I think that there's a lot of us that have been in the cracks for a long time for so many different reasons. Um, and, you know, breaking the mold for me, it's like, if we're going to break the mold, like that means we need to break all the molds. We need to break the capitalism mold. We need to break the healing industrial complex. That's like a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and, you know, like that comes back to thinking about like, how people access a space, both carrying their identities and their experiences and like their ability to financially afford being in a healing space. And I, you know, I'm forever healing, hearing that, um, you know, like this practice will change your life or that practice will change your life or come do one session and then your whole life will be different and you can have this life changing experience for the price of $500, you know? Right. And well, fuck, now I can't, I can't change my life. Right. <laughs> you know? 
it's like, and then the burden comes back on the individual. And then like, we have to feel all kinds of shame because I mean, we don't have to, but you know, if it's a familiar, if it's familiar territory to be like, ah, cool. Again, another space I can't access. Like it's gonna, it can go so hopeless so fast. And so, yeah, I would love to hear about, yeah, some of your thoughts on it and like, breaking the mold and sliding scale and all that. Cause I know you work on a very special model too. Yeah. Yeah. I've been working with sliding scale and donation and like trying to figure out financial accessibility for a long time. Um, somewhat successfully sometimes and not at others, but I think just to go back to a second to this idea of it, of being in an expanded state, um, and like recognitions that we've had in those spaces. One thing that like has been a really strong imprint for me when I'm in an expanded state that I've entered from any, any pathway is the, um, discomfort and the dysfunction that arises in me when I feel like I'm either in scarcity mode and like needing to access something and trying to figure out how or when i'm in selling mode and like i'm trying to get someone to pay me for something or to you know to yeah to sell something and i hate the feeling of both of those things like i absolutely hate it and i i really have a strong um like a, a bodily sensation of the distance that comes between me and another person when there's um, not all the time, but a lot of times with financial transactions, sometimes financial transactions can feel really healing. And I've started to feel that more and more as I've incorporated um, financial accessibility into my work. And the, the ways that I've done that, um, a couple of years ago, I started working with tiered pricing. And b basically, like if I was, um, doing a workshop or I was teaching yoga teacher trainings at the time, or we were hosting visiting teachers. And so we would work with a tiered model. Um, the middle tier being kind of the sustainability tier, what we needed to make per person having a, um, either a lower cost or even a donation um, mm -hmm. tier for people who needed it. And then having a higher tier for people who could afford to give more. And for a couple of years, I was working on crafting the language around it because at first what happened is that everybody either went for the middle or the lower tiers and then, um, you know, it became obvious that people were trained, culturally trained to look for a deal and to not really um, be in a space of question around their own financial privilege and what that privilege could mean for another person who, who wasn't coming from the same place. So we worked a lot with the wording and um, ended up coming up with wording that I think has been really effective where basically there's an explanation of what the tiered pricing is or how the sliding scale works. Um, that is a call for community. Like it's a call for community building and an explanation that um, financial um, like varying degrees of, of financial um, capacity have nothing to do with the actual value of either the person who's trying to access the work or the work itself. But money is something that some people have and some people don't. And, and when there's wording like that, 
it, it totally changed. Like all of a sudden, then we were having experiences where um, a lot of people were coming in at the higher tiers. And, um, and then, you know, people who really did need the lower tier, the sliding or the donation could fully access it. And whatever we were doing was, was sustainable. And it was not only um, generative, but it was like regenerative. It was, it was building a lot of momentum around what we were doing. And in the last um, year, I've started a um, kind of a similar model with my own business. I stopped doing the teacher trainings and have mostly just been working with myself, but I have a subscription uh, with Embodied Astrology that's a donation subscription. People, you know, some people sign up at like $3 a year, like their annual subscriptions. Um, but a lot of people sign up for, you know, $3 a month or $5 a month, which is a pretty accessible amount. I mean, it's kind of like, okay, I'm gonna take my friend out for coffee once a month. And that's the amount and um, they're paying for digital content. And so as a person working in the gig economy, you know, it's like I'm putting in a certain amount of work, but that work is infinitely reproducible. And what's happened is that the subscription has built enough consistent income for me that now I'm able to um, implement full sliding scale with my clients. And um, what's been really exciting for me is that um, so starting with my next quarter, when I put out new availability, I don't have any limits on it. So I've kind of gotten to the space where every single session is available on the sliding scale. Um, before it was like, well, I can afford to have, you know, this many per month or something like that. Um, and um, yeah, so now I feel like at least in my own business model, I know that I'm pretty accessible. I mean, there are still a million barriers. Some people don't have internet, you know, it's like it is going to take a certain amount of, of um, economic access just to access me at all. But then a lot of people can access me and that feels really important for my own state of well-being and health and my own desire to be in an expanded state more of an expanded state of, an, of awareness more often, which is something that we didn't necessarily talk about, but maybe we, we will have a few minutes for, but um, just to finish up, that I guess my experience with extreme states of expansion, either through psychedelics or through breath work or through like really focused embodiment work, like in those spaces, that's not, it's like medicine. It's not a place where I want to live all the time, but it is a place that I want to influence my life more and more. Like I want to feel more open. I want to feel more connected. I want to feel more psychedelic. Like sometimes I hear voices or I see spirits or I'm like talking to the trees, you know? Yes. And I want, I fucking want that. Like it's, it makes, I, I actually think that's our birthright as human beings. Like this is a psychedelic world we live in there's so much crazy living energy interacting all over the place i want to be part of that and when i'm not in a state of constant survival scarcity or to do's but i feel comfortable i feel supported in my life and then i feel like i can connect with people easily and lovingly in an exchange that's like easy for everyone and people aren't in a space of like oh my god i saved up for months so i could see you this fucking session better be fucking good you know this kind of thing 
then we, we actually have like really intimate, transparent connections and it feels good for everybody. And I feel so much better, so much more of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's super beautiful to hear you talk about that. Cause it's, you know, I think that that your work is such a good example of like how <clears throat> working on a scale and like changing it as needed allows you to give even more, you know, which yeah. I think like my experience, you know, it's like when I'm, when I'm resourced, not just financially, it's like, I get to give even more, you know, like I get to, like I have this, um, I work on a sliding scale in my breathwork private sessions and in my herbal consultation private sessions. Um, I don't uh, usually in a group just because, you know, it's often in a space and there's, you know, they take a usually half or a large portion of um, the ticket price and, you know, computer systems don't allow for often doing a scale, Depend, you know, there's like, there's a lot of barriers and, you know, luckily a lot of the spaces that I work out of also believe in offering different tiered things. So like one space in Brooklyn, Heal House has amazing donation work all the time. So people can drop in and get ear seeds from my friend M.A. Derbe or like, um, you know, come to a yoga class. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in spaces and for myself where there's like multiple access points, you know, like as well, where, um, you know, like people might not be able to afford the lower end of my scale, um, which starts at 80 for a breathwork session, but like maybe they can afford to come to a group breathwork session or, you know, one space at Juniper in Brooklyn. I do two, um, $20 instead of $40 to $20 spots each month or, you know, in my own practice, my scale goes, um, starts at 80, but then I have two or sometimes more spots that are at 40 for folks who are experiencing, you know, all kinds of different oppression. Um, and I also have this thing called pay it forward where people can, when they book sessions with me online, they can add a little bit like 10, 50 extra to what they're paying. And then that goes into like a fund that I keep track of. And like when I have enough money in the fund that I'm able to offer another $40 session or I can offer a free session sometimes if someone writes and is like, I just can't access this. And so it gives me a lot of flexibility, like sliding scale. I think I hope offers other people accessibility and um, it gives me more, more space to do my work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel that too. And also when you were talking about um, being able to give more, I feel like you and I are both doing work in the world that, so for me doing astrology, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of like this woo, maybe even luxury expense. Um, but then on the other hand, I know that it gives so much support and validation for folks to listen to themselves, listen to their own intuition and get into um, maybe like a low key expanded state, you know, to feel like they're connected to something that's bigger. They can connect to their own knowing. I know that's true, you know, with breath work and also with, with herbal medicine. Um, and I feel like being able to give and also knowing that the thing that I'm giving is an opening substance, mm -hmm. like that this is also living in an expanded state. And I, 
it's not at all the same, but on a really subtle level, like when I think about it or I feel into it, I have the same kind of skin, you know, an inner body sensation that I do when I've eaten mushrooms or something. It's like I get tingly. I'm I like I feel my pores starting to open. I get excited. I feel like a softness coming around my heart. And that to me feels like a validation. It's like, well, this is this is how I'm supposed to feel. Like this is my natural body state. Totally. Yeah, I often feel like that at the end of a day of breathwork sessions where I'm like, fuck, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. It is so cool to be with other people. Um, you know, like finding like finding their their like a connection to themselves through the work, which is what it is. You know, it's like I'm there creating the container, but like the real work is like finding our connection back to ourselves and like finding like our own like inner wisdom that exists. It's there, you know, and like that's that's the sustainable healing to me is like it's not it's not a like facilitator or a leader or a teacher who holds all the knowledge. It's like when I'm in spaces where I get to remember my own, you know, right. and like be really connected to that and be be witnessed by somebody else too. You know, like in your readings, it's like someone's being witnessed for for their like the fullness of their lives and their chart. And like I think, yeah, just being in a space of witness is such a cool, a cool way to be in the world for me. Yeah. <laughs> It makes me think of what you said a while ago about the difference between losing yourself versus connecting to yourself as a reason to engage with um, medicines, but yeah. that also like this work is, is so much about both of them that, you know, that when it's like losing ourselves in the sense of selfhood, individual, you know, sustenance and this idea of like the, the, um, kind of uplifting and prioritization of the self, like losing that allows us to connect and then opening and connecting allows us to find ourselves. Yeah. The true selves. Totally. <laughs> I had thought about talking about your chart a little bit. Um, Cause I've been looking at it the whole time we've been talking and having a million thoughts go through my head. So maybe I'll just share a couple of them. Um, where to start? I mean, okay, so first of all, Jenny is a Libra, but your Libra is so intense. <laughs> um, you have your son conjunct Pluto and Libra. You're kind of right at the end of a generation of people that's the Pluto and Libra generation, which I'm also a part of. Um, and this generation, um, which I, it was, I guess, from the early 70s through the mid 80s, um, is a generation that receives the, the destructive, the transformative, and the regenerative potential of Pluto in all things Libra. And Libra, of course, rules relationship, marriage. Um, notions of equality, justice, and the law. And so the, the Pluto and Libra people are, when I think of Pluto and Libra people, I think about the group of people who coined the term social justice and who've done a lot of the work around conceptualizing what social justice as practice is. Um, 
And then side note, the people that are Pluto and Scorpio, the next generation are a lot of the folks who are really integrating that into the deep systems. Um, and then I think about uh, the work that people in Pluto and Libra have done around relationality and understanding one's own role in relationship, being accountable, doing the self-work, and then also clarifying, um, you know, how we meet in relationship and what our expectations are, et cetera. So your sun is right at the base of your chart. It's, it's um, exactly at the root of your chart. You were born um, basically in the middle of the night. And the root of the chart is the root. In, in the body of the chart, this is the place that describes like the perineum, the base of the spine, the connection to uh, ancestors and kind of like the root of the, the world or something. And then your sun is together with Pluto, it's like the god of death, transformation and rebirth, um, as well as Jupiter. Um, Jupiter is also conjunct to your sun, and Jupiter is the gift and the teacher. Mm. So that to me just feels like such a powerful image and sensation for you and the kind of work that you do. And um, when you talk about times in your life where you experienced um, like a, a death drive, or this desire for intensity in extreme states is very Plutonian. Mm -hmm. And you're, this complex of, of Libra, Jupiter, Sun, Pluto, um, is part of what's called a minor grand trine. And mm -hmm. so on either side, your, your Libra stellium is reaching out to fire. And on one side, you've got um, a reaching out to Mars and Leo. And on the other side, you've got a reaching out to Neptune and Sagittarius. And you also have um, a couple other placements in Sag, including Venus. Mm. And um, Sagittarius is a seeker, you know, it's a, it's a sign that's associated to the high teachings and high wisdom. And Neptune is another generational aspect. And I see this a lot in people, again, I'm part of this generation too, who are doing the work of dissolving barriers between knowledge fields. And mm -hmm. so a lot of us are, you know, we've, we've devoted ourselves to study and a lot of us have had like really intense relationships with teachers and with holders of certain lineages that are very contained in themselves. Like, you know, I've worked with a lot of teachers who they've been on that path in that particular lineage for, you know, decades, like for the, their whole lives, like their teachers were on that path too. And then I find myself and other people in my, my cohort, my peers, that were, um, were exposed to a lot of different things and we're finding the interweaving threads between all of them and we're doing this work to connect them and to, to dissolve the seeming differences between them. Um, and you have this placement in the fifth house in, in the space of creativity. And we've talked a lot about in the past, like your, your writing practice and other creative practices and the way that you are kind of a, a conduit or a channel for a lot of the information that you're gathering and attracted to. Um, yeah, so much to talk about in your chart. I think those were the, the things that were like coming into me a lot while we were speaking. Um, but then also something that you mentioned in your email is that a lot of astrologers have um, talked to you about this kind of underworld predominance in your chart where most of the placements in Jenny's chart are below the horizon, kind of in the deepest part of the chart. And this can lead to a personality that's um, very introspective, very internal, um, 
really kind of working on themselves has a lot of uh, close-in experiences that these are the most important experiences, what happens at home with family, with immediate relationships, but also to personalities that are drawn to the depths and that really like to dive deep. But then you've got your moon up in the first degree of Gemini in the 11th house and the moon is the hunger. It's like we have to satiate it. And it has a lot to do with how we care for ourselves and care for others. And this moon is like in a sign that wants to connect and share information and a part of the chart that is totally devoted to community. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the ways you're talking about, you have all these experiences, how do you even put words around them, the compulsiveness that you have to put words around them and to share them. Um, And that feels like, you know, your work and the moon, I think, speaks a lot to our work because it is something that we have to satisfy is to somehow translate and transmit all of this rich inner experience and deep intuitive knowing and transformative process that you go through into language that's accessible that people can connect with and that's widely disseminated in community. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I really feel that um, split as well, where it's like, you know, I, I would be probably pretty content to just be in a dark room for a very long time alone. But then, yeah, I, I am, I like to get it out to other people too. Cause I, you know, like, I don't think, I don't think anything that I'm going through is very unique. It's unique to me because it's my own life and like the own patterns of my own life are mine, but like, it's not, these are like, I'm just, I'm just in the human shit, you know, <laughs> like I'm just wrestling around on the ground in the, all the, all the turmoil. So why not, why not get it out, get it out of me and out to out into the larger world? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm certainly glad that you are. Thanks for taking the time for this conversation too. It's been really fun to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for all the, yeah, all the labor and everything that you give to so many of us to help us just like be connected, be more connected to our lives. Super, super important. But yeah, I mean, I guess before we go, where can people find you and find your work? And can you tell us a little bit about the book you have coming out and the book you already have out and what you have in the, in the works? Yeah. So people can find me. Um, my website is corpusritual.com or you can find me on Instagram as Corpus Ritual. Um, yeah, I have a book out that I edited called Queering Sexual Violence. Radical Voices from Within the Anti-Violence Movement, which is a collection of like 35 plus queer and trans folks. Um, most, yeah, all survivors of various kinds of trauma and a lot of people who have like worked in anti-violence work. Um, it's pretty incredible. It's tons of, I mean, I'm not just saying that. It's nice because like in an anthology, it's like not about me, you know? Like I'm like, there's a million brilliant people in it. Like it's, it's, a, it's a valuable resource. Um, and then I have a book called The Power of Breathwork that's coming out March 3rd. It's already out in some places in the world. Uh, yep. (laughs) And so it'll be coming out March 3rd. Um, and that's more of a like kind of primer, hands-on book for breathwork and getting connected to, um, different practices that people can use at home. And I like it because it's like, again, accessibility, like we can work with our breath alone in our house with our friends with our partners our family um and yeah i offer 
um, distance and in like in local um, herbalist consultations. And then I do one-on-one breathwork sessions, both on a sliding scale. Those are in Brooklyn and some virtual. And yeah, I do groups in New York City and beyond. For more information and links to Jenny's work, please take a look at the show notes. Make sure to follow Embodied Astrology on social media at Embodied Astrology on Instagram and Facebook.